Good morning. Normally, I need to kind of break you all up and say like, hey, stop talking, but it's, uh, it's a little lower key today. That's okay. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm speaking today. You might have expected Heidi, who was actually on the schedule to speak today. I don't know if Heidi and Jamie are watching from home, but they're sick. And so um, they uh, were looking for somebody on Friday afternoon to like replace Heidi, which is hard to do. She does a great job giving, giving uh, sermons. And so Kelly, my wife, received a text saying, would you like to give a sermon? And I would have been very excited if that would have worked out. I've never seen her give a sermon before, so I was kind of excited about that. But she's gone this weekend. So then Kelly, uh, lovely as she is, threw me under the bus and said, Heidi, <laughs> maybe Adrie would be interested in, in speaking. And uh, I say, throw me under the bus. I, I, I like doing sermons, but I also like time to prepare. So normally I, I, I tell Jamie, I want at least two weeks. I like one week to just kind of read the text, meditate on it, and do some research. And then the second week kind of things come together and I, I have a message. So like this is, I don't know if you know the Myers-Briggs, but the last one, Jay, judging. I'm, I'm like, I'm fairly in the middle on all of them, like character-wise, but versus P, perceiving, where you're just like kind of very flexible. And then you have the J side that is like, you like things, you like to know what's coming up. Like I think I'm one, um, uh, digit off from being an absolute J. I like to know what's coming. And so less than 48 hours ago, I was like, I need to figure out how to do a sermon. Now, luckily, earlier this year, um, I went to a church in Tri-Cities that invited me to give a sermon. And so I already had some notes, so that really is helpful. So I'm just going to be recycling a sermon I gave earlier. Now, you might be asking, Adri, what are you doing going to other churches giving sermons? What's up with that? It's a little weird thing to do. Most of us don't do that, right? Um, <clears throat> that has to do with my job. I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a student ministry. I specifically work with students who study abroad. And as part of that, I do fundraising, which whether you're the one doing the fundraising or whether you're being asked for fundraising, a lot of the times like, oh, no, I don't want to do it. Or like, this is an, an awkward thing of being asked sometimes, right? So um, I've been doing this for 12 years. And um, having a lot of people that have come alongside our ministry and supporting us, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And throughout that, that time, there have been people that said, like, hey, you should come and talk at our church. Maybe they're interested. And so over the years, I've created some relationships with different churches, and this is, in Tri-Cities is one of those churches that uh, we try to visit every year, but of course, during COVID, I hadn't, hadn't been doing this. And so um, this was actually the first time I gave a sermon again at another church in over two years. So this is just perfect that I had some notes, and that's what we're going to do. That's why it also feels maybe a little random. Normally, we have a theme going on. I don't. I, I was asked at that church to do a passage in the, the uh, second chapter of John because they just started the book of John. So that's where we're going. We're going and looking at a very familiar story. Uh, the wedding in Cana, uh, a lot of people even who have never read the Bible are familiar with the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, but at the same time, I think there might be something to learn. There always is something to learn, right? Like even if these stories are very familiar to us. So I just want to ask yourself to open yourself up to the possibility that there's something new to discover today. So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, John uh, is, uh, well, it's one of the Gospels, right? There's four Gospels, and uh, where, for example, the Gospel of Matthew takes some time kind of setting up the story before we actually get into Jesus' ministry, John jumps straight in. 
You just start telling, like, Jesus' beginning of his ministry. There's the baptism of Jesus. There is the Holy Spirit that comes on him. And before you know it, he's calling disciples to follow him. So that's all that happens in chapter 1. And then we get in chapter 2, and he goes to a party, to a wedding. And I want to say a couple of things about that as well. Um, Weddings are very much culturally... um, well, different, depending on what place you're in. Even though there are certain elements that are, of course, the same everywhere you go, um, a Dutch wedding is very different from an American wedding. And even in the US, uh, depending which family you go to, what traditional background you're from, a wedding is going to be different. <laughs> now, this is a wedding that takes place in first century middle, the Middle East. And um, Middle Eastern weddings, even today, are very different from the ones that we uh, experience here. So. Um, my, so let's go back to the ministry I do with Study Abroad. Study Abroad is part of our missions department. Actually, our name, the, the bigger name of that department is Global Engagement and Justice. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Also, the abbreviation doesn't, like G-E-N-J, G-E-J. I don't know. I don't know why we made that decision. But anyway, that's our missions department. And underneath that, we have a variety of different programs, including like Study Abroad, but also our global programs. And global programs are mission trips for students that they do uh, either over a spring break, but most of them we do during the summer. And, and the idea is often six or eight weeks long. And the idea is to give students an experience of displacement and kind of getting a bigger view of what God is doing in the world at the same time that they actually can serve among, a lot of the time, the, the mar- marginalized people groups, poor people, um, <clears throat> sometimes in rural areas, sometimes in urban areas. The director of this program is Scott, and um, I was talking the other day with Scott about one of these trips that he took to Cairo, Egypt. And Cairo is one of those cities that just keeps on growing. Uh, it actually it doesn't have enough capacity for the people that are there. About a half a million people a year move to the city. And a lot of them, um, they don't have a lot of means, and they end up on, on, the, on the edges of towns, on dumps, uh, in, in like pretty much going through the trash of others, and building cities on top of these dumps. And this is where we take our students, right? Like, this is not a pitch for you to sign up, right? Like, this sounds a little scary to go do this, but this is what we do with our students, alongside missions, organizations, and we, we make to the, the, the extent that it's possible, make that as safe as possible. But we want our students to really connect um, with the work that God is doing doing around the world and the heart that God has for people everywhere in all situations. And so Scott is spending several weeks there and he's walking around this shanty town, really. At one day, uh, he sees something that he hasn't seen before. There's this parade coming towards him. And as they come closer, he sees them dancing and jumping and, and, and singing. And of course, he doesn't speak the language. He doesn't quite know what's going on. And as they come closer, he gets invited along with them. And before he knows it, he sits down and there's food and he realizes this is a wedding. And he's eating food with other people he doesn't know. He can't really communicate with his people. But hospitality is so important, right? Like this is, again, like one of those things, like we we value hospitality. You go to the Middle East, hospitality is one of those things that everybody has to do. It's this really important value. And so as he is there, he starts reflecting, or probably afterwards, he starts reflecting and thinks like the father of the bride must have been saving up money for years. He has been calling in all these different favors from friends because there isn't a lot around. But in the middle of this place where there is poverty, where there there seems to be just a lot of hurt and, and, and difficulty to just live life from day to day, there is this image of this wedding that is lavish. 
And that is the image I want you to keep. Uh, the same thing as we're going into this story in first century uh, Israel. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of really poor people. There's, a lot of, there, there's not much to celebrate day by day. But then there is this wedding. So let's keep that in mind as we read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I think it will also show up behind us. On the third day, we already had a few days happen in John 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. When he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this text that might feel a little random, at, like just chosen uh, on Friday. But also, um, we believe that none of these things are random. We believe that you guide us and that there's something in this message. This is your living word. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever we are at, that there will be something here um, for, for each one of us. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, will continue to be present with us as we dive a little deeper into this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me uh, take a not-so-strategic uh, sip of water. I try to normally be strategic about these things, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Now, there we go. Um, so, one of the things I do in InterVarsity, uh, and I love about InterVarsity, is our focus on Bible study. And we do a particular way of Bible study that is called inductive. I know there's different organizations that use that name too and, and use it in a different way. But uh, you have inductive and you have deductive. And deductive is you come up with a theme, for example, the theme of love, and then you start looking through the Bible and see, well, where, where's God talking about love? Which is a great way to approach Bible. And the way that we normally do it is an inductive way, which is trying to say, like, before I'm starting to come with all my like, ideas about scripture, let's just read it. And let's try to figure out what the author, the author in this case, John, is trying to communicate. Try to, let's see a little bit more about the cultural background. And, uh, and as we understand that, then maybe we can start to ask some questions and, and, and go a little deeper into the text to come to an application. 
So that's just kind of the way I, whenever I prepare a Bible study, but also when I, pre- when I prepare a sermon, that's the first thing I, I kind of do. Maybe I first meditate on the text, but then I do an inductive Bible study just myself because it helps me kind of go a little deeper. And as I did that, I came up with several questions, and I thought, why go through all the difficulty of, of shaping a, a, a sermon if I can just answer four questions. So I have four Bible study questions that I came up with, and we're just going to go through those questions, and uh, hopefully there will be some enlightening answers to some of those. So the four questions I have for us today, and they're not going to be on the screen because, again, I only knew this on Friday, so I'm just glad I have a sermon. There's not going to happen anything behind me anymore, at least there shouldn't. The questions are, what is significant about the interaction between Mary and Jesus? You might notice that there seems to be a little tension, so I want to dive into that, what's going on there. How would running out of wine during a wedding be perceived in this culture? Uh, I know that when I run out of things, when there's guests over, it's a little embarrassing. Well, how does that translate into the culture of first century Middle East? What can we learn from Jesus' attitude, which is a little bit more of an application question? And then how does this event fit in the larger story of the Bible? So those are my four questions, and we're just going to dive in uh, into the first one. What is significant about the interaction between Mary and Jesus? So we know there's a party going on. We know there's a bride. We know there's a groom. We don't know their names. There's a master of the banquet or master of ceremony. So this is some of the people that are being introduced. And beside that, we know Jesus. Jesus is there. He brings his disciples that he's just met in in John 1. Uh, He brings those along. Then at the end of the text, we see there are brothers of Jesus present. Uh, There might have also been sisters. We don't know. So he comes with a group. And of course, Mary. And Mary has an interesting position here because... Uh, as I mentioned, hospitality is really important in this culture. It's so important that if you um, do not give hospitality to others, it's a shameful thing. So knowing that they are about to run out of wine is not something you want every guest to know at the party. Mary seems to be privy to some information that's not available to all. Why would that be? I think there's really two options. Uh, They lived about eight miles away, so they might have really known these people fairly well. Um, I think they're either family, maybe extended family of Mary and Jesus, or uh, they might have been really, really good friends, really good family friends. And so Mary has a special uh, role to play at this, at, this, at this wedding. And then comes this interaction with Jesus. She, she makes the statement, they have no more wine. She doesn't say a command, like Jesus go do something about this. She doesn't ask a question either. She simply says, they have no more wine. A simple statement, which is kind of interesting. Why would she do that? And that's, again, a cultural difference here. Um, We live in a culture that's fairly direct. I'm from the Netherlands, which is even more direct. Sometimes they call us blunt. It's pretty much there's less filters installed, right? Like I think something and I say it. Um, By the way, I don't normally do that when you don't ask me. But if you ask me, do you like my sweater? That's a dangerous question because I might actually say what I think. So that's a more direct culture. An indirect culture, uh, it's actually most of the world has more indirect culture. Uh, I studied uh, communication in college. Uh, People often joke, like, communication is one of those things you study if you don't know what to study. Um, I I actually, one of the studies that I I found very, very helpful throughout my life, uh, part of what we did was intercultural communication, so kind of seeing, like, how do people from different cultures communicate with each other. And I remember this story in one of my books, and I've never been able to trace back where it exactly was, so I'm just retelling the story out of memory. 
but it always stood with me. Uh, it was about an American student and a student from the Middle East who were sharing uh, an apartment uh, together. And um, there is this really silly problem they're having. The American has a beard, just like me, and uh, he goes into the bathroom and he trims his beard, but he doesn't really clean up after himself. Now, of, of course, the Middle Eastern guy is going to get a little annoyed about that, right? When, when I do that and I, I don't clean up after myself, Kelly will come up to me and, uh, direct as she is, she will say, hey, clean up that mess, right? Like, that's kind of how we communicate. But this Middle Eastern student, very much from a more indirect culture, says to the American, I notice that you have trimmed your beard and leaves it there. And the American says, yes, I have. <laughs> End of conversation, right? From the Middle Eastern perspective here, it is that there is context. There's context like you just went into the bathroom, you just trimmed your beard, I just came out of it, I saw it. That's all context that you should be aware of. I now mention that you have trimmed your beard. You should put the pieces together. That's not the type of culture we're in, but that is what Middle Eastern culture is much more like. And so when Mary says they have no more wine, she's saying much more than just making a statement. She is telling Jesus to go do something about it. And then Jesus responds, and Jesus' response is interesting too. He says, woman, why do you involve me? That sounds rather harsh. Now, the word woman in Greek is actually a term of endearment. So maybe rephrasing it like, dear lady, why do you involve me? Sounds a little less harsh, but it still sounds like Jesus is pushing her away a little bit. The literal translation would be something like this. What does that have to do with me? <laughs> right? So it feels like Jesus is creating a little bit of distance here. It sounds a little harsh. Why would Jesus respond like this? Well, I have a theory about that. What I think might be happening here is that Joseph, the husband of Mary, has passed away several years ago. Jesus is the oldest son, and so he's gotten some more responsibility in the household. He's still living at home with his mom, which is very normal in these cultures. Actually, a lot of cultures around the world, you live at home until you get married. So he's still at home, and he's fulfilling the role as oldest son. And as that, Mary has some influence over him. Mary can tell Jesus to do certain things. But now something has just changed. In John chapter 1, Jesus has now started his ministry that God has called him to. And Jesus is setting some boundaries. It's, it's a little bit like when I became a college student and I would go back, back home, my parents would start telling me to do things and I'd be like, hey, 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 like the relationship has changed a little bit, right? I'm grown up now. Well, my parents didn't quite agree with me there yet. And so we had this kind of, and it, this took like probably 10 years. And even today when I go back home for, I, I was just in March, I was there for a few days. I realized it's really easy for me to step into the patterns of the relationship that we had 20 plus years ago. And, uh, and my parents are wonderful people, but I still notice that, right? And I think here Jesus is saying a little bit like, hey, mom, I still love you, dear lady, but things have changed. I now need to do my father's will, whatever God has set before me. And so his response is firm, but it's also loving. And we also see that Mary doesn't get super upset about this, right? Like she actually, uh, uh, she, she still has faith. She goes to the servants and says, like, do anything that Jesus tells you to. Which is another interesting thing because this is the first sign. Like John has seven signs uh, of Jesus, miracles that happen. This is the first one. So from that perspective, you would think that Mary hasn't seen Jesus do miracles. I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that's kind of what I get out of John here. 
So what is Mary then expecting Jesus to do? Do a miracle? Change water into wine? Maybe. I think it's more likely that she expected Jesus to go down to Dismores and buy some wine. I, I, I think that Mary knew her son, and she knew Jesus' heart, and she expected that Jesus was going to care, and he was going to do something. She simply didn't quite know what. And Jesus does do something when his hour, the Father's time schedule, allows it. So let's then go to the next question. How would running out of wine during a wedding be perceived in this culture? So before I worked with study abroad, I worked with international students both here in Pullman and in Moscow. And I've done that for eight years, and then after that, I just wanted to stay connected. So there's a ministry in town, International Students, Inc., that I still connect with. And uh, last fall, they asked, like, hey, would you like to host a party in your backyard? They were not going to be there, the the people that normally host. And they said, it's not going to be a really big group, probably like 10 people. Uh, And and we decided to have a bonfire in in the back of the yard. And, And so we expected about 10 people, and 25 showed up. Now, some of them brought food, so that was great, but then some of them were college-age guys. I don't know if any college-age guys here, but they, uh, they tend to like, get their plate and then stack it like, vertically as high as they can. So, you know, we, we're running out of food way quicker than we were supposed to. And uh, Kelly, finally, with one of the kids, got into the car and, and got the best pizza in town at uh, Hot and Ready, Little Caesars. And so we just got some, some quick, I mean, just quickly, we needed more food. And, and it kind of worked out. People got enough food, probably. But it was a little bit embarrassing, right? But that's it. It was a little bit embarrassing. Um, that's not so the case here. I've mentioned already before, first century, Middle East, hospitality is extremely important. And there is real shame when, that, like, when, when you aren't able to provide for your, for your guests. So let me ask a sub-question there that I had. Why do they even run out of wine, right? Isn't that just bad planning? Again, these weddings are a little different. Uh, they're not just like four or six hours long, like our weddings, maybe eight hours, like for a big party. Uh, they, they can be multiple days. They can be a whole full week of celebration. So you can imagine like planning for that makes it a little harder already. And then the guests, it's not like they RSVP'd and then they showed up on time. Um, some of them showed up halfway way the party, some showed up from the beginning and stayed the entire time, and then just random relatives showed up, like, hey, there's a party in town, and they came as well, friends. So you really, it's hard to guesstimate who's actually gonna be at the party, so that's another problem. Now, the bridegroom was responsible for the wine, so at least to get the wine there. So he would have purchased the wine, and uh, so he might be partly at fault for not getting enough, getting enough wine there. But then you have the master of the ceremony, who is in charge of making the, the wine last. You might wonder, how do you make wine last? Like, just give people a little less? Uh, well, what they did is, like, initially, you probably started out with the real wine, and then you started, like, putting some water by the wine and just kind of making it thinner and thinner and make it last. So maybe the master of the ceremony is messing up here and just not, not doing a great job of making it last. I also want to make a side note about wine in those days, because um, you might wonder, like, well, why are they using wine or no other drinks? Uh, any type you took any type of, of uh, fruit and you turned it into juice, it would ferment. There was nothing you could do about stopping that. Either it'd go bad or it'd ferment. Those were the two options. Today, with packaging and stuff like that, we can actually have grape juice that doesn't ferment. But at those days, so that was kind of the way to keep it healthy and to keep it going. 
but at the same time, it wasn't like 12% alcohol. It probably was just a few percent. So it, the people, you shouldn't imagine the people at the party as being completely drunk on like day two, right? Like drinking like really heavy wine. It's just probably mild buzz that they're having. Uh, and the other re reason too is like this, we, we know there's ceremonial washing jars. So this is a very religious family. Might even be from a priest, some have some theologians think. So again, unlikely that they would be throwing a party where, where everybody's getting drunk. So that's just a kind of a side note. But so there's a bunch of people that we could potentially blame for running out of wine, but it really doesn't matter who is to blame all that much. And again, this is a cultural component. We live in a culture that some have called a guilt innocence culture. What that means is that my individual behavior leads to individual consequences. Very simple, I break into somebody's house, I steal something, the cop is waiting for me, I'll probably go to jail, get a fine, right? There's individual consequences. Now it's not like that doesn't happen in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, but they are part of an honor-shame culture. So the consequences aren't just for me, but are to the entire group I belong to. So in this particular case, whoever messed up, yes, they're to blame and are probably <laughs> Some people are gonna be angry with them, but running out of wine in a culture that finds hospitality extremely important is gonna reflect back on the entire group, on the entire family, and not just at that moment. I mean, just think about it. This is something shameful that happens in the most public of settings. Everybody's gonna know, and 10 years later, they're gonna run into this now 10 year old, like 10, on the 10th year anniversary of this couple and say, oh, those are the people the wine ran out on. These were like, this is the party where they weren't good hosts. So this has a really big impact on this family. So if you then reread Mary, who says, they have no more wine, initially that sounded kind of like just kind of a factual statement. I don't think it's a factual statement. They have just ran out of wine and they're seconds away from disaster. Right, the next guest who's gonna to try to fill their cup with wine is gonna know there is no more wine. And I think Mary is saying this in full panic mode. She's still not telling Jesus what to do, but this is like really obvious from the context. Jesus is getting the panic and he's understanding what's being asked of him. And then Jesus does the miracle. And by doing this miracle, he doesn't just save a party, but he turns shame into honor. And it says in the text, when the wine was gone, the word gone in Greek is hysterio, which is interesting because it doesn't just refer to the quantity, it also refers to the quality of the wine. And here Jesus doesn't just restore the quantity, it's, it's about 120 to 180 gallons of wine that was like water that was turned into wine. So there's definitely quantity, but it's also the best of wine. So it's not just the quantity that's there, the quality has now improved as well. And I think that comes to where I see Jesus whenever he shows up in the Bible or in our lives. He's not just there to restore quantity. He's there to restore quality. He's there to restore all of it. It's total restoration. So next question. So it's more, like I said, an application question. What can we learn from Jesus' attitude? This is the problem often with a text that's so familiar to us. You start reading the first few sentences, like, oh yeah, that's where Jesus was uh, turning water into wine. Uh, or like, oh yeah, that's where Jesus is gonna walk on water, right? Like, they're so familiar to us that we are not even surprised by it anymore. However, if you would read this for the very first time, 
you would not expect Jesus to turn water into wine. That's not the thing that you expect to happen in a story. It's unexpected. It's a supernatural miracle. The other thing that's unexpected is who are the first to know? Most of the guests in the, in, in the wedding don't ever figure it out. But the first people to find out are the servants. They're the ones who scoop out the water, and it's not water, it's wine. And this is, again, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus talks about all the time. Who are the first to hear that, that Jesus is born? It's some shepherds, some poor, marginalized people out in the cold who are the first to know that the Messiah is born. And here, it's the same thing. It's the servants, the lowest at the party, who are the first to experience God's goodness. And then the honor doesn't go to Jesus. Jesus was the one who did the miracle, right? Like, shouldn't he get all the honor? Most people don't even know. The people that get the honor is the family. Like, wow, this, this wine is better than we even expected. And so the honor goes to the family, and Jesus doesn't need the honor. And we, we actually see this happen throughout Scripture as well, where Jesus heals somebody and says, don't tell anybody. I find that maybe one of the harder things to do in my own life. Because I am always searching after honor, even in little things. Like, let's say I come home and I notice the dishes aren't done. It's really not my turn, but I do the dishes. And then Kelly comes home and she doesn't notice. I'm like, hey, did you notice what happened in the kitchen? <laughs> That's me. Right? It's silly little things like that. I want the glory and honor. So let's go back again to my time doing international student ministry here in Pullman. Uh, for seven years, we did an international furniture giveaway. And I found out about um, this, this, even this idea from a friend who lived in Corvallis, who said, like, they have this really cool thing going on here where they're giving free furniture to students. And so I thought, that'd be a really great ministry. So I got together with some, um, some other ministries, some other churches. I had this video that I could show them from Corvallis. Several of them got really excited about it. And so we started it. And in May, we would go to the students, like seniors who were leaving, collect furniture from them. And then over the summer, we had different churches, including this one, donate furniture to our cause. And then we had some time to repair things towards the end of summer. And then early on in September, we started our furniture giveaway. And we had this big launch on, on Saturday morning where a lot, of, a lot of the students were graduate students who came to Pullman but didn't have any furniture and they didn't have a car and they didn't have a driver's license. So, so even if they had money to buy stuff, they didn't know how to get it to their house. And so some of these people I met had kids and they had been sleeping on the floor for two weeks. So this was a great way of really helping these international students that came to town. And so this is like year four or something. It's like really going well. We have a lot of people involved. And suddenly I see this TV crew show up. And uh, they walk to this lead pastor that I've never seen at any of our meetings or anything we do at Furniture Giveaway. And he starts giving the pitch about the vision about the Furniture Giveaway and everything that's happening. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's not fair. Like, I started this thing. He's getting the honor and glory. I want the honor and glory, right? And I really had to take a step back and say, like, this is not about me. This is about what God is doing, and it's going well. I should be rejoicing that so many different groups are doing this together. It's such a hard thing to do, and it's such a human thing to just jump to that place. So even though we're not at the end of the sermon yet, I want to give you a question to reflect on for just a few seconds. Is there a place in your life where you need to be reminded to live out your life more in the servant-hearted attitude of Jesus? 
I'll say that one more time. Is there a place in your life where you need to be reminded to live out your life more in the servant-hearted attitude of Jesus? I'll just give you 30 seconds. Okay, so up to the last question here. So the question I ask, and I like to ask this with a lot of the time I read the Bible, is like, how does this event fit in the larger story of the Bible? Because we're so used to like looking at one verse and taking it out of context or one little story. But there's this big story that the Bible tells us, even though it's 66 books and it's lots of sections and sometimes the stories don't seem to really connect. I believe that there is this overall narrative that, um, that is interconnected. And John does a great job. He alludes to the Old Testament all the time, and he alludes to other parts of Jesus' life story as well. And so um, one of the things when I was looking at this, and I, I, I read up on this, it wasn't something I discovered myself, but I think it's a very uh, beautiful connection, is the connection to Moses. So in John, we have seven signs that Jesus does. This is the first sign. Moses has 10 signs. You might be familiar with the 10 plagues in Egypt. The first of that sign is turning water into blood. And then nine signs later, what happens is that the people of Israel, the Jews, are freed from slavery and are able to go to the promised land. Now here in John, this is Jesus' first sign, turning water not into blood, but turning it into wine. And then six signs later, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're all freed to be with God. The second thing that we see here is that of a wedding, the imagery of a wedding. We see that through all, like Jesus uses as an example, the great wedding banquet. Uh, we see it also throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 62, 5, it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And very similar in Revelation 19.7, all the way to the end of the Bible, it says, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So this allusion to the wedding of the church to Jesus. And I think both of these images are a huge, should be a really great encouragement to us. Through Jesus... Just as the people of Israel were set free from bondage and slavery in Israel, now through Jesus, we are set free from our bondage to be with God. And not just that, but we're invited to a heavenly banquet. And again, thinking about that imagery of the wedding at the beginning, the world around us might look difficult, at times, right? Like this week, we look at the news, and the world looks really, really difficult, really, really harsh. But then there is this invitation to be part of that heavenly banquet that is just like Scott, my, the director of this program, saw in Cairo. It's just such a huge difference between the poverty that he encountered and then the joy that happened in the middle of that, that wedding that just seemed beyond lavish for the place that it was in. 
And so I want to end this with that encouragement and reading as a blessing. Uh, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 over you. It's a little piece. It's also talking about uh, wine, among other things. It starts with the sentence that says, on this mountain. And on this mountain means the Jerusalem physically here, but also the heavenly Jerusalem where the banquet will take place. A little later it says, he swallows up death forever. And this refers to Jesus' death and resurrection, swallowing up death. So I want to leave you with this with this. Um, with these verses from Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. So with that, I'm sending you out in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.